we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in West Cork, I investigate stories of the strange and mysteries from history, always attempting to remain critical, but hopefully never cynical. This is a bonus episode about the origins of the beast known as King Kong, because I had a, an, an extra episode lying around in my back catalogue. And of course, the recent big film Godzilla vs. Kong has come out, and I was talking about that on the last episode because of connections to the Hollow Earth, and I thought I would dig this episode out, uh, dust it off, and uh, give it to you. This will be uh, an old episode to some people, a new episode to some people. It was part of my my now-defunct Patreon campaign, which I did have fun with, but... Having to produce lots more extra stuff turned out to be difficult. In the end, I've gone with a slightly different system where if you're a fan of the show and you'd like to support, you can do so over at Buy Me A Coffee. It's buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. I always forget the dot com, but you guys are smart. You can figure it out. Huge thanks to the folks who have done so already this week. I am drinking for this episode. Uh, nothing stronger than a frank and honest Americano, which is going down nicely as I watch the sun come up in the forest outside the cabin. Hopefully there are no cryptozoological critters out there. Usually they don't get up until afternoon anyway, so it shouldn't be a problem. Right, why are we talking about King Kong? Because this new film came out, I talked about it briefly on the last episode, a number of my friends got in touch to say, Kian, what are you doing recommending this absolutely stupid, ludicrous film? I will say that maybe I do recommend films that are stupid sometimes, but, you know, I rarely do more than a soft recommend, and it's not really because the film is good, it's usually because the film has something to say about the weird topics that I cover. So, in this case, Godzilla vs. Kong is tremendous fun, it's also absolutely ridiculous, but it has, you know, maybe the most interesting visual take on the Hollow Earth idea that I've ever seen, at least the only time I've ever seen it done in a film with a big budget, which was very interesting to me. Certainly, it's got to be one of the most um, mainstream interpretations of that particular strange idea. So, I wanted to say that. I also uh, want you to let you know that this episode that you're going to hear was kind of like a follow-up to um, a, a kind of a, a longer and more substantial episode a more well-researched episode called Colonialism and Kong, which you should probably listen to first because this episode is like adding to that. Um, I'll put a link to that first episode in the show notes. It's a good one. I'm proud of it. And this episode you're going to hear now is like an add to that. And it's kind of like me talking about my sources for that episode. So some of the books that I have about the history of Kong. There's a lot of stuff here about the history of the Lost World genre, which is one of my favorite things. A lot about Willis O'Brien and stop motion photography, the original King Kong in 1933. And then there's some stuff as well about uh, Peter Jackson's 2005 interpretation which as flawed as it is um, still remains probably the most heartfelt and and perhaps my favorite interpretation of Kong that isn't the first film Um, and 
I have a lot of thoughts about that on this episode. So what you need to do, you need to listen to this. If you like it, please share it with somebody who you think might also like it. That's really, really important. Um, get in touch with us over on Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland or Instagram. We are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast if you want to see pictures of my, usually my, my woodland rambles and uh, a few other bits and pieces as well. So, right. Hope you enjoyed this one and uh, until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening. So we're going to talk about something connected to our main episode, which this week is about King Kong. It's about uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong and the idea of Kong as a sort of a surrogate story about colonialism and and the history of that film. And what I'm going to talk about in this episode is like an addendum to that. I'm going to kind of go through some of my sources for the main episode because I have some really good books about Kong and uh, both about the original and about Peter Jackson's remake. And I'm just going to kind of flick through them and have a little chat about what I like about both of them. Um, the first one here is called King Kong Cometh. It's a collection of essays compiled by Paul A. Woods. Pretty sure I bought this when I was in maybe Amsterdam on a trip in, in college. I've definitely had it for a very long time. And I've always been fascinated by the background to King Kong. I kind of talk about this in the in the main episode, but I used to do a lot of stop motion animation as a teenager. I spent a lot of time shut up in an attic with uh, the windows blacked out and moving tiny little armatures around, which is a bit of an antisocial hobby. But I, I was obsessed with um, these old-fashioned creature movies where all the special effects were done uh, with, with stop motion, which if you don't know anything about special effects, stop motion is like Aardman animation, like Wallace and Gromit type stuff. But even though I had books about, about Aardman and how they did everything as well, and I like Nick Park and I like Aardman, I was always drawn to the the more old-fashioned uh, films where they used these special effects to create monsters. So I liked Ray Harryhausen, and I had a lot of books about him as well. So this this book, King Kong Cometh, we'll start off with. It's a collection of essays um, about the history of Kong and the ideas behind the, behind the movie and, and stories about the origins of it. And there's a chapter here called um, Evolution, Missing Links, The Jungle Origins of King Kong. And it, it kind of talks a lot about uh, Marion C. Cooper, who was the um, the producer on King Kong. If you've seen any of the versions of Kong, um, basically he's Carl Denham. He's the showman. He's the guy who takes everybody on the ship out to Skull Island to find King Kong. And he's based on he's based on Marion C. Cooper himself, who was the producer. And he was like a real-life sort of jungle adventurer back in, in those times. And he was really well known at this time for um, making what they used to call jungle movies. So he would go out into, you know, exotic places and film. And he always gave his films these kind of weird... He, he had a thing for monosyllabic, <laughs> exotic sounding words and names. So he made a film called Chang in 1927 in, uh, in, in Southeast Asia. And it's written here as Siam, <laughs> which it would have been called, I suppose, in those days. Um, and... Yeah, there's there's a chapter here about um yeah, the nineteen twenty-five silent movie version of The Lost World. So you can't talk about the history of dinosaurs and monsters in movies without talking about the Lost World, of course. Arthur Conan Doyle's nineteen twelve novel being the like that's where we get the name for the whole Lost World subgenre. And Arthur Conan Doyle was, you know, still alive and still writing uh, when this film came out in nineteen twenty-five. Um, and of course, it was the first major work by Willis O'Brien, who was the special effects artist who made, well, the creatures were made by his assistant, Marcel Delgado. 
And this was something nobody had ever seen before, this stop motion animation. And it's kind of hard to cast your mind back to that time and imagine that nobody had ever seen this before. But it would have been as shocking to them as, uh, let's say, the, the, the early CGI of Jurassic Park was to us in, in, in 1993. So there's an often told story that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle showed a preliminary screening of some of the special effects work for what would become The Lost World. Uh, the, the stop motion animation by Willis O'Brien and he showed it to a gathering of magicians some kind of magician society I think this happened in New York I could be wrong but the story goes that he screened this for them and they all freaked out they couldn't it's not that they believed that dinosaurs were real but they just had no concept of how this could have been done and Conan Doyle always said I did this to provide a little uh, mystification for those who had so often and so successfully mystified others I don't know where I'm pulling that quote from. It's not in this book, but uh, there's some great there's some great information here about uh, Willis O'Brien's early career and just how he kind of he didn't invent stop motion, but he did invent stop motion as a way of providing special effects creatures for films. And um, one of the he, he had a lot of projects that never got made, and he he was an amazing artist. He drew this really. Uh, evocative uh, Gustave Doré influenced style of art uh, and he was obsessed with lost worlds and lost cities you know shrouded in jungle and strange creatures and dinosaurs particularly prowling through them but maybe because of his early success with the lost world he he never really let go of that style of storytelling and he had he had all these famous lost projects one of them is called Creation uh, about again an island with you know prehistoric prehistoric creatures on it that uh, you know modern day humans uh, stumble upon he had another film which i would love to have seen produced in, especially in the 1930s which was called war eagles and uh, the idea was that you know he, his adventurer characters discover a, a hidden valley somewhere in the northern latitudes and there's a, a race of lost vikings who have a society there and uh, not only that but they fly around on the backs of these gigantic eagles who you know they use as beasts of war and this being the 1930s the film was to climax with uh, a, a gigantic battle in the air above new york where the the the, the vikings and the eagles face off against nazi aircraft and uh, yeah, O'Brien did scripts for this and he produced preliminary artwork and even built some of the creatures as far as I remember. And I would love to have seen that. I, I, I genuinely wish, I, I talk a bit on the main episode about the history of the Lost World genre and, and Lost World literature. And I say that it's, it's, it's inherently tied to this time and it's kind of, it's kind of out of date and, and gone and finished and, and has been. The only way to come back to it is, is you know, setting a film in olden times and having it be an exercise in nostalgia or pastiche, as Indiana Jones did with in the 1980s by setting all their films in the 1930s, when you could still kind of have these kind of silly adventures. But man, I would love for someone like Peter Jackson to make uh, a big budget version of something like War Eagles and set it in the 30s and have a have a you know a big budget Lost Race movie with such a just such an out and out crazy idea. And uh, I, I think his style of uh, self-indulgent sort of over-the-top special effects would, would is better served with a kind of a plot that's inherently a little bit silly anyway. Um, there's a picture here from The Lost World with... Uh, there's a, there's a, a missing Link character, who they, you know, like an ape man, and that is from the novel. And he's played by a guy called um, Bull Montana, who was, I think, a Hollywood stuntman in the 1920s. And... The, he's standing in front of what's what's supposed to be the South American jungle because that's where the Lost World happens. But 
it was it's clearly shot in, in the back lot in like Burbank or somewhere like that and this is something that shows up a lot in Lost World stories as well because of the sort of if you think about the time when these stories are gestating it's it's not only the time of high colonialism but it's you know in the mid 19th century you've got Darwinism which is a huge psychic blow to the Victorian psyche and they become obsessed with uh, stories about apes and lost worlds uh, filled with apes and ape men and societies of and all, these this these jungle films that predate King Kong there's a, there's a chapter here that kind of focuses on um like the idea of a giant gorilla doesn't come out of nowhere there is a there's a trajectory for this in these Hollywood jungle films beforehand there's a lot of films with not all of these has, have survived and there's only like images and, and behind the scenes photographs that we know of what they, what was in them but they would typically have like stock footage or shot on location in some jungle footage and there'd be guys in in ape costumes carrying off white women into the jungle and discovering you know lost tribes of natives or lost tribes of ape men or something like that and king kong is definitely kind of tapping into that the story goes that marion c cooper who was the producer and ernest Schultzak, who was to be the director um, had this debate where they were arguing about whether man or nature was more powerful and what kind of a creature could embody this uh, fundamental conflict and they came up with the idea of a giant gorilla because it was powerful like a beast but it had the brains of a you know close to that of a human and so the story goes that's where they came up with the idea of king kong but you can tell from this book that there's a lot of the dna was was out there already and it, it's the more you look into the hollywood of the 1920s and 30s the more you see that these ideas were floating around as well as the the longer tentacles of the lost world genre which goes back to the 19th century obviously there's a nice picture here of Shodzak, who was also into, into making and producing jungle pictures. There's a picture here of a film called Rango, which kind of fits into the, the sort of naming conventions they had. In it, Kong was, King Kong was going to be just called Kong at the beginning. That's what uh, Cooper wanted, because that's the way he liked to name his films. But uh, the studio thought it sounded weird and uh, oriental and might be off-putting to American audiences, which is funny because, I mean... Like, he'd had a big success with Chang a couple of years earlier. Anyway, this photograph is of um, uh, Ernest Shodzak. Apparently, he was called Shorty, and it's a joke because he's actually really tall. He's standing next to his wife, Ruth Rose, and he's uh, like he's got a good two feet on her. Either she's very short or he's very tall, but based on his nickname, I presume he is tall. And he's he's dressed in the classic, uh, you know, early 20th century colonial explorer gear. He's got a khaki shirt on and tan trousers and he's got a, a like a pith helmet and he's got like a, a a knife on his belt it's probably like a small machete or something and ruth rose is dressed the same way as well now ruth rose did a lot of the dialogue she ended up touching up the dialogue on king kong and uh, supposedly she was told to like hit the uh, beauty and the beast theme over and over again and she's credited with giving the film a lot of its kind of enduring appeal and uh, it's so, so they're standing in front of like a thatched roof cottage in some tropical location it says here they're on location for rango in 1931 i'm not sure exactly where that was made so what else do we have here we have yeah it's a little bit more about the history of of the lost world and yeah well here's the bit about the uh yeah, dinosaurs cavort in film for doyle spirit spiritist obviously conan doyle was well known as a um a spiritualist 
Spiritist mystifies world-famed magicians with pictures of prehistoric beasts. This is from the New York Times. Monsters of several million years ago, mostly of the dinosaur species, made love and killed each other. I don't... Hmm, I don't remember that. Killed each other in Sir Arthur's pictures, ran the breathless report. In living pictures, a family of dinosaurs was seen nuzzling affectionately, only to be attacked by a group of tyrannosaurs. The tyrannosaurs then fought amongst themselves until one broke the other's back and was prevented from devouring his kill by the arrival of a triceratops, which drove away the predator. A late arrival, a stegosaurus, remained impervious to attack by nature of his uh, natural armour plates. His monster, oh I like this one, his monsters of the ancient world, or of the new world which he has discovered in the ether, were extraordinarily lifelike. If fakes, they were masterpieces. I love this kind of implication that, well, they might not be actual dinosaurs, but, you know, maybe he conjured them up through spiritualism somehow. It just kind of shows the, the sort of... The, the thin, how thin the veil was at that time in, in that world between the kind of, you know, hard, cold, steel world of the 20th century and the, you know, one foot still in the old-fashioned spiritual mindset, which, I mean, spiritualism was still huge in, in the 1920s. And yeah, this, this uh, screening of The Lost World was indeed held at Hotel McAlpin in New York City, along with the coffee, brandy and cigars. The Conjurers took turns demonstrating their mystifying art. And that was June 2nd, 1922. So, you know, a good three years before the film came out. I love this idea of having a a, con, a, a conjurer's get-together in, in the 1920s in at this presumably swanky hotel in New York and everyone is having brandy and cigars and coffee. Wonderful. You can watch this silent movie version of The Lost World on YouTube if you're if you're a mega fan, if you're like huge, huge, huge into uh, the history of dinosaurs in film, as I've said before in the podcast, like the there's there's kind of like only really two archetypal uh, good dinosaur stories, like good decent use of dinosaurs in fiction, and those are the the Lost World, the original one, and for me personally, Jurassic Park and the film version as well. There's not a whole lot. I I, I can't. I don't know why they haven't been used better in narrative fiction um you would probably get some people who'd vouch for uh, there, there's a few books and comics written by people who are dinosaur fans about like taken from the point of view of of dinosaurs there's one called raptor red and i don't know maybe if you're huge into like animal behavior this is interesting to you but i'm a zoologist and i, I find that stuff hard going i i kind of like dinosaurs I, you know, I'll be open to any other use of them, but I, I like them within the context of an adventure story. And I, d I don't know why that has been not done well very often. I think because the template was set early on and people really struggled to get beyond that. So The Lost World in, in, in the book 1912 and the film 1925 were both big successes. And it's kind of hard to tell stories about dinosaurs that don't follow one of just a few patterns like you know explorers find dinosaurs still alive somewhere which seems unlikely in this day and age or um, a dinosaur runs amok in a city or you know dinosaurs are recreated in a lab which is obviously a post-jurassic park development there's a lot of lovely pictures here of uh, you know what you're better off you're better off just getting some youtube clips of the stop motion animation just to get a flavor of it there's loads of them on youtube so they're all like these ball and socket jointed armatures with foam around the outside of them. And Marcel Delgado did a lot of clever things like he used to 
Um, he put these little airbags inside them and then he could inflate and deflate. So they'd pump, pump each one up slightly and then deflate it slightly. So it looked like the animal was breathing. And obviously this has to be done incrementally. That's the way stop motion is. You have one little change for each sort of second of footage. I've got some pictures here for our concept art for the film Creation, which Willis O'Brien um, never got to make, but he did a lot of pre preparatory artwork for. And um, it's very clear in this picture, it's a triceratops. It's very clear that he was massively influenced by Charles R. Knight, who prior to the 1980s and the, what they call the dinosaur renaissance, he was the primary artist you know, the, in, who was influencing what people thought dinosaurs looked like. It's interesting because he was painting in the, in the 19th century at a time when we think that, you know, this is concept that before the 80s, everyone thought dinosaurs were big and fat and slow and sluggish. Now, I've got Darren Nash's book here, Dinosaurs, How They Lived and Evolved. And it is signed because I did meet him once uh, at the London Zoological Society a couple of years ago. And he just makes the point at the beginning of the book that um, originally when dinosaurs were first discovered in the 19th century, people recognized the links to birds, like the way the bone structure was, put, put people in the mindset of, of, of birds, some, some scientists at least. And uh, they were generally visualized as being fast-moving, sort of pseudo-warm-blooded animals. And Darren Nash reckons that it's not until a little bit later that we get this idea that dinosaurs are big and slow and stupid and, you know, Brontosaurus has to be in the swamp, all that sort of thing. It's more of an early 20th century thing. And um, that, that becomes clear when you look back at Charles R. Knight's work because he depicts, there's a famous painting he has of, I think, Daspetosaurus moving two of them, like romping, and one of them is jumping on top of the other. And it's not a, a fight, it's more like they're... They're playing the way, you know, young kittens would or, or you know, birds in your garden. And it, they're, they're very much depicted as fast-moving uh, fast animals. And this is the sort of train of thought that Willis O'Brien is following in his artwork for, for all, all everything he did, really. And, of course, he went on to become the primary guy behind King Kong and in, in 1933. And there would have been no King Kong without O'Brien because, I mean, the story has nothing going for it if not for Kong and for the uh, animals, the dinosaurs and things like that as well. So there's a lovely section here where it shows, it compares different posters for the original film, just out of interest, and see how how Kong was marketed. And there's a lovely variety of different styles. Some of them are very Art Deco looking. Some of them are very realist. Um, and some of them are, they, they differ wildly in, in in like the size of Kong and how, how the different illustrators imagined him. So there are pictures where he's only a very small little bit bigger than, than Anne Darrow. So in every single picture, Kong is holding Anne and she's got her, you know, she's wearing this filmy dress and she's got her long hair flying out and her legs are flying everywhere. And it's the classic monster movie image of the creature you know carrying the woman and like some of the pictures he's only about 15 feet tall and it's clearly not that different to like all the jungle pictures that came before in other ones kong is so big he's literally looming over in new york city and he's taller than every building and it's completely ridiculous most of them are sort of somewhere in between um oh there's a really good story yeah so there's a there's an article from a magazine from the 1930s called Modern Mechanics and Inventions. And it's got a lovely kind of behind the scenes, uh, like almost like a comic strip of how the film was made. 
and how the special effects were done. Except it's complete horseshit. This like, it doesn't. I don't know if this is because they didn't know. I don't know if the studio kept the stop motion animation technique a secret, or if or if the magazine was just making stuff up and presuming that this was how it's done. But they have all these illustrations of um, a guy in an ape suit being filmed in front of uh, a screen, and then the rear projection is is put in behind them. So he's. There's a picture where he's like standing on top of this uh, full-size mock-up of the top of the Empire State Building and there's a screen behind him and these filmmakers are rear projecting the aeroplanes behind him and he's roaring and growling. And there's another one where um, he's like the guy in the suit is climbing up the side of a mock Empire State Building that's on the ground of the studio and a guy on a raised platform is filming. And... It says, this comic-style production report created the myth that a man in an ape suit appears in King Kong. Of course, Kong was never a man in an ape suit. He was always a, a, you know, a a model that was only several inches high. And this story apparently did the rounds for for many years, and people did believe that Kong was a guy in a suit. And people have shown up over the years claiming to have been the guy who played Kong in the suit. And there's just so many levels of bullshit here. But it's, it's just really interesting that this magazine would just make something up. It reminds me a little bit of like Victorian periodicals that would try to e- explain and, and debunk various kinds of psychic performers, and uh, they would just make stuff up. They would say, "Oh, you can, you know, this guy's doing a show in London where you can go and see him, um, you know, do these psychic tricks, and this is how we think he's doing it." And they would propose these ridiculous, uh, like guys hiding under the un- under the stage and all these ridiculously elaborate paraphernalia with ropes and mirrors and smoke and extras behind the scenes and they just had no idea how this stuff was done so just because they were debunkers doesn't mean that they were correct which is pretty interesting there's an interview then with ray harryhausen who of course um, they they used to call him the man who saw king kong uh, 100 times basically he was 13 when it came out in 1933 and he went to see it and Uh, went to see it over and over again and really did change his life and he became obsessed with stop motion as well but unlike me he lived in california and was actually physically close to the industry where this was happening so he just showed up and uh, started hanging around the studios made friends with willis o'brien and eventually became uh, willis o'brien was his mentor and uh, eventually harry hausen went on to eclipse him of course and is a much is a much better known today unfortunately willis o'brien didn't do a whole lot of good films besides uh, The Lost World of King Kong. I mean, like I said, he was really trapped in this. He only had one string to his bow, which was like, what if, you know, explorers go to some island and find dinosaurs? That's kind of his only... And I love that story. It's one of my favorite archetypal stories. But, uh, you know, over the years, his his films got worse and the, the you could tell his heart kind of went out of it. So he was a guy who... Who peaked early i think again like this there's a reason why this genre is limited even though i love it um it's it's like nobody really did any good work reinventing it until maybe michael crichton so he does he does two things in in the seven the late 70s he writes congo which is silly but great fun great fun novel and an even sillier film but also a lot of fun and what he does with congo is he's like well what if king solomon's minds but set in the contemporaneous 70s and with loads of tech and the other thing he does is um is just make it a bit of a pastiche i think and then in the last in 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 jurassic park of course he sort of reinvents the lost world concept by 
adding in the genetic engineering element so it's not that we have discovered relic animals somewhere it's that we've created them and it's more of a frankenstein story and i will have an episode coming up about jurassic park and my thoughts about Crichton, and especially my thoughts about Crichton's attitude towards science which is something i want to get into very much uh, other cool stuff in this book there's a wonderful pre-production picture here presumably by o'brien based on the style and it's it, late in the film there's a scene where kong is going through new york and he's looking for Anne, and he he's picking up women who are blonde and going oh she looks nice and then it's not Anne, so he like drops her to her doom <laughs> and there's a bit where he sticks his hand into the window of a bedroom to get at this woman and there's a pre-production drawing for this and it's absolutely terrifying it's almost entirely black it looks like a well uh, the text says the scene where kong's paw invades the bedroom of an anonymous woman represented in the production art this expressionistic drawing makes it the stuff of nightmares yeah it's like something out of uh, a fritz lang film from the 1920s it's very disturbing all right there's a lovely chapter called untold horrors of skull island which is there's a famous scene that fans of the original film always talk about where king kong is being you know he's fighting or he's he's kind of given the sailors on the island a hard time <laughs> and they're trying to cross this log bridge and he rip, lifts up one end of it and shakes and they fall off and they fall down into this ravine and uh, nothing much happens but in the original there was a scene where the the, the sailors you know fall to the bottom of the ravine and they're kind of busted up but some of them survive and then they start to wake up and they realize that they're surrounded by all these horrible creatures these gigantic bugs things that look partly like spiders and partly like crabs and they are devoured by these nightmare creatures in the black of this abyss these creepy gigantic oversized creepy crawlies and this scene apparently in the test screenings turned the audience cold they were incredibly distracted by it and they couldn't stop talking about how horrific it was and they weren't really able to get back into the flow of the film so it was cut from the final cut and it was lost for many years well as far as i know it's still lost so that scene was very famous amongst fans of the film and whenever anybody would you know come up with a new cut of the original the fans would say oh do you have the scene where they the sailors get eaten by the spider crabs and as far as i know that f there there's only pre-production stills available um so what happened was peter jackson did two things with his remake uh being obviously a gigantic buff of the original and, and being aware of all this stuff number one he recreated the spider crab sequence using 1933 technology so it's in black and white and it has the sailors falling down and then stop motion monsters eat them up on a little physical set and uh, as far as i know that came with the dvd for 2005 king kong that i had back in the day but i haven't seen it for many years but he, just the kind of thing a super fan would do the other, th the other thing he does is in his version of the film, the 2005 one, he recreates that film in, you know, grisly glory with kind of 2005 CGI and really goes to town and has an absolutely insane amount of monsters and creepy crawlies come out of the darkness to, to attack the sailors. And yeah, it's one of my favorite scenes in the film just because of the absurd range of like goofy but horrible creatures that are in it there's some stupid stuff in it too like there's a character shooting gigantic cockroaches off of adrian brody's back with a tommy gun and it's just 
I mean, in a film where people shoot mos- giant mosquitoes with a pistol, it's I guess it's not that much of a stretch. Anything else I want to talk about here? Oh, there was a there was a crappy sequel made, not very well remembered, but uh, 19, less than a year later, in 1934, they rushed out a sequel called Son of Kong, where Denim goes back to the island and finds a smaller, shorter, and uh, white-looking gorilla who they decide is uh, the Son of Kong, and even though there's no mate in, in evidence. And it's short, it's only an hour long. It's amazing to me that they actually got this done, because stop-motion animation is notoriously slow, and this is a very quick turnaround time to, to be doing anything with stop motion. But I guess, uh, I guess there just wasn't as much animation to be done. I've seen this, I saw this film years ago and it's nothing, nothing to write home about in fairness. I think we'll move on to the second book. So my other source for the main King Kong episode that's dropping this week, should be Saturday hopefully, is called The World of Kong and Natural History of Skull Island. And this this is basically a fancy pre-production artwork uh, tie into the film. So I presume this still happens. I don't feel like I see it as much anymore. But when blockbusters used to come out even 10 or 15 years ago, it was common for, you know, especially for science fiction and stuff, there'd always be these books of the pre-production artwork. I remember it was a big deal with the Star Wars uh, prequels and stuff like that and you know it's for people who are interested in in the property but also in the history of filmmaking and the production process and the artwork as well and this is wonderful because it's it's written as if it's a like a field uh, notebook compiled by um you know a, a team of ecologists who have gone to the island so it's taking on the the, the pretense that skull island is real and it, it, after the events of the film in the 1930s various expeditions went there and chronicled all the different wild creatures that were there and as i as you'll hear in my main episode one of the things that the peter jackson film does very successfully is it creates the locale of skull island as being this crazy wild lost world chock full of like insane creatures and it the the book is by weta workshop who obviously are his in-house um special effects company they're like his version of industrial light and magic and they're based in new zealand and aweta is a a local type to an antipodian type of um cricket and actually the the gigantic crickets that appear in the spider crab sequence are, are wetas so they're named after that and this book is brilliant it's it's a really fantastic it's not at all a cynical cash in as these sort of tie-in things sometimes can be it's really a wonderful addition to the world building and it adds a whole lot of stuff to the world of the film and it's it's very clear that a large amount of people deeply cared about what they were doing there's incredible creativity here and whatever shortcomings the film has and and you might perceive them to be very great and very grievous uh, creativity and the 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 desire to create this beautiful lost world is not one of them so we, we get maps of skull islands which as far as i can tell don't have um, any any scale on them which is i think they're hedging their bets they don't really want us to guess how big the island might be because i mean it can't be that big but the amount of diversity on it is is faintly ridiculous to be honest so this doesn't really make sense from an ecological point of view overall but i i i'll get to that so there's beautiful beautiful paintings it's all it's all um drawings and paintings and artwork done by the wet team and this is like i would this looks to me like really high class paleo art so paleo art is its own skill and 
you're a fan of, of Darren Nash, he, he, he talks about this all the time because he's a dinosaur guy. But um, it's it's both landscapes and and creatures. So it's split into like different regions of Skull Island. So you've got the highlands, the uplands, the jungle, and the chasms, the swamps and waterways. And it's all it's all built around this idea that the island is a geological anomaly that's actually sinking into the sea. And uh, as part of the expanded narrative of the universe in this book, um, there is a volcanic eruption at some point uh, during the final. Um, investigation and the island sinks into the sea and it's gone so it's all written in past tense skull island was this geological oddity so let's have a look at some of the organisms that we've got living here so yeah there my favorite thing is that this i think this was done by i think some people on the team must have been like knowledgeable about animals and and may have been trained um in in zoology or ecology to some degree because all of these crazy creatures are not real, but they are, you can imagine them being real. You can imagine, they are plausible enough extrapolations from actual animals. So knowing what we know about the way evolution works in particular, none of the changes that have been made to the animals are too ridiculous. The only thing that's ridiculous really is that there would be this one place where evolution went nuts and everything kind of hyper spe uh, speci speciated. But I mean, there's some there's some precedent for this, like, like the the central jungles of the world, the Amazon. The reason why the Amazon is so ethno-diverse, we think, is because it's just been there for longer. Like it's been less that that habitat has been there for a very long time compared to other ones. It's been less affected by vast changes of climate and ice ages and stuff like that. So just the mere fact that it's been around longer seems to imply that that's one of the reasons why it has such high speciation so you know it's not impossible that an island full of sort of prehistoric holdovers uh, left untouched somewhere in the south sea might have all these creatures so we've got oh i i love the way all of the creatures are given like proper um proper uh, latin scientific names with with the two parts the binomial system the linnaean system uh, and then they're just like they would in a book about dinosaurs or any other animals. So uh, on the beach section, we've got the this thing called Os Osteotomus, the, the bone house, which is like a gigantic type of hermit crab that uses the skulls of dinosaurs to be its uh, its home instead of shells. We've got this crab called Cune Predator, the nest plunderer, which is a some kind of gigantic crab which has developed two sets of pincers instead of one. We have like some a thing called uh, the limosaur, Limosaurus corodomolluscus, the nibble away mollusk slime lizard, which is like a three foot long amphibian, which uh, attacks, which crawls up out of the water and uh, attacks some of the smaller lizards. We've got a whole page on different kinds of flying lizards. Now flying lizards do exist to a degree, but these are all animals whose ribs have, have uh, evolved to become these sort of uh, proto wings we've got a chapter on the skull islanders which kind of goes into the idea that they're not native to the island they must have washed up from somewhere else and that they have no idea you know what what the situation was with the civilization that once lived there you know hundreds of years ago which i get into on the main episode as well and there are some problems with that from a sort of a uh, it, it's a problem common to the history of fantastic fiction to be honest we have loads of different kinds of um 
triceratops type animals which you can imagine ha having ad adapted or evolved from a styracosaurus or a, 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 a triceratops so there's a thing called a feructus cerastes the horned iron hide who is like a triceratops but his main front horn has been sort of blunted uh, there are also like uh, types of ceratopsians who are small and light and are, are are climbing up on hillsides and stuff they're almost like mountain goats so i mean this is what nature does it, it fills gaps in in niches and if there's a habitat then the remaining animals that are nearby will eventually evolve to use it we've got entire uh, systems of termites with three different castes laid out We've got a thing called a Calcariosaurus ionosus, the hungry spur lizard, which is clearly some sort of evolved form of uh, an ankylosaurus. Uh, oh yeah, and we have got the the so the T Rex surrogate, which you might remember from the film. By the way, most of these animals never even show up in the film. The film couldn't possibly show this this insane diversity, and and the amount of them that are predators is ecologically ridiculous. But whatever. So instead of a T Rex, you've got this thing called uh, Vastatosaurus rex which is the v-rex and they there's all this there's wonderful illustrations of like how they might have evolved over the years from a t-rex because they're a little bit smaller a little bit boxier their face is a little bit shorter their snout is a little bit more blunt and there's like literally diagrams of the skulls of the the original and then the contemporary one and then a hypothesized um, ancestor in between which is wonderful i love how they're Basically, the design, the animals were designed to look a little bit like kind of 1930s and 40s monster movies, dinosaurs, but they're then back projecting this sort of ecological and evolutionary explanation for it, which is which is really funny. Um, oh, there's a gigantic fish, a predatorial fish called a. Oh, where's it gone? Oh yeah, the Pteranodon titanus, the Titanic piranha tooth, it's 50 feet long. Um, it's got these horrible spines running down its back. It looks a little bit like a, almost like one of those um, underwater reptiles, like a like a elasmosaurus or something. But it's it's a, it's a fish. So this is something that they play with a lot. They'll have an animal that looks like one, but it's actually evolutionarily another. So there's a whole section on these kind of horrible carnivorous bats, but they're actually not. Uh, technically bats they're some kind of uh, rodent which has developed wings putting it in an entirely different group of animals there's a whole chapter on horrible underwater uh, parasites with names like uh, profanus and cutis cutiscus let's have a look oh so profanus <laughs> meaning the unholy a variety of large free swimming tapeworm profanus periodically attaches to host animals where it rasps away the skin to expose the flesh exuding an anesthetic to numb the wound eggs were laid into the flesh while the parasite remained attached upon hatching larvae lived in the wound until old enough to swim away and breed and uh, if that sounds kind of like horror movie nonsense this there are plenty of animals plenty of parasites that do behave like this there's four different kinds of parasites and each one has a different mouthpiece and a different way of piercing the skin and a different ecology worked out for like how it's young uh, how it's young emerge and they're all lavishly illustrated here's one called cuticidus which is skin crab and it's literally a parasitic type of crab which is just amazing a remarkable variety of parasitic crab cuticidus attached itself to a host skin and fed from the wound the skin crab's carapace formed a protective scab-like cap to shelter the parasite as it grew 
the crab detached only to breed, dropping to the riverbed to locate others of its own kind, after which it would seek a new host. And again, this is made up of bits and pieces of real animals that uh, that, that behave in this way, but just not, not a crab. <laughs> but, I mean, there's no reason why not, really, I suppose. There are invertebrates that live in the water that are so big they're, they're eating seabirds. Um, there are various kinds of sort of stegosaurus um, and uh, even terror birds like dimorphod... No, not dimorphodon. What's that one called? Can't remember the name. But yeah, great stuff in this book. Oh yeah, now we've got a chapter about the, the pseudo-raptors and they are called Phanatosaurus. And they're just a bit bigger and a bit chunkier and... They kind of have, again, blunter front ends. And they're playing with ideas here of you do get certain kinds of island-specific speciation where animals either become very large or very small. You've had, you know, cases of dwarf elephants and dwarf mammoths that were found on uh, northern islands. And you have gigantism, I think, is probably more rare as well. And there's entire pages of fictional fish and fictional... <laughs> uh invertebrates and stuff but just to wrap up i'm gonna talk about my favorite chapter which is the abyssal chasms and this is the these are all the creatures from the horrible spider crab sequence and there's wonderful paintings of the the caverns and the chasms with uh you know fading away into the darkness and into the gloom and all these horrible creatures scuttling around so what do we have here we have one called weta rex which of course is the uh, giant weta some kind of cricket we have a thing called an arachnoclaw <laughs> uh, an oversized arthropod uh, living in the lightless chasms that wrench the fractured island surface looks kind of like a spider um mostly like a spider i would say giant spider there's a thing called a deplector a giant blind land crab lived in the cracked and crumbling rock walls of the abyssal fissures that spider webbed the shattered island this is absolutely the stuff of nightmares they live in the sides of the caverns and they stick their giant claws out to grab the flying rats that go by. <laughs> and then maybe the most memorable creature from the whole film is called Carnictus Sordicus, the vile meat weasel. And I'm going to read a little... I'm going to read actually a good bit of this one because it's just so horrible. These are the sort of disgusting wormy things with the big, with the big uh, toothy mouth that uh, make mincemeat of a bunch of characters in the film. Undisputedly, the most repulsive denizen of the hellish rent in the Skull Island interior was Carnictus, writhing, serpentine, vermicular predators of the tepid sludge that suffocated the depths of the chasms. They were feeders on the dead and wounded. Uh, lacking eyes or a face of any sort, Carnictus were little more than an animated stomach that folded in and out of itself with obscene undulation. Intestinal parasites similar to the tapeworms that can infest humans the ancestors of Carnictus lived in the guts of large predatory dinosaurs where they devoured the half-digested flesh swallowed by their hosts. At some point in their history, these gut parasites must have evolved so they could survive outside the confines of their host's intestinal tracts. They made their new homes in the geothermal spring-fed sludge that clotted the bowels of the island. It is theorized that long ago, a V-Rex-like predator fell into one of the chasms and died, its parasite cargo disgorging it slowly from the carcass to find themselves in the rich organic river in the pit's base. Instead of drying up and dying, they thrived. Warmed by the hot geothermal water bubbling into the syrup of the pits, the worms were sustained on the flesh of animals falling into the chasm from the jungle above. 
parasites no longer. They swelled to disturbing new proportions and became carrion eaters in the abyss. And there's a horrible picture of two of them taking down a full-sized dinosaur that has fallen into the chasm. And I think I'm going to leave it there, folks. So that's enough background. Hopefully you enjoy the main uh, King Kong episode this Saturday. If you feel inclined, if any of this has inspired you to watch either the original or the remake, then you'll be in good standing for the episode that's coming. So we'll talk next time. As always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.